The Alchemical Tech Revolution is sponsored by Anchor. Anchor by Spotify. That's anchor.fm. Hi folks, this is Wayne McCroy, host of the Alchemical Tech Revolution podcast. I'm here to tell you tonight about Anchor. Anchor is one of the best podcast distribution apps out there. Uh, They offer various ways to create, distribute, and monetize your podcast all for free, and they have some of the best built-in uploading, recording, and editing tools available in the industry. From start to finish, they can help you to set up your podcast. So if you are interested in starting a podcast, check out anchor.fm. Or if you are already a podcaster and you're looking for distribution solutions for your podcast, check out anchor.fm. Come with me.
Listening to the Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McCroy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to explore the origins of modern psychology. Have you ever wondered how the science that's known as psychology got to where it is today? What its origins were, where it came from? Well, we're going to take a look back through history, and we're going to uh, explore this avenue of thought, and we're going to trace forward some of the concepts here that have brought us to our modern era of psychology and some of the pioneers of that field, in a sense here. The ones that really began putting it forward as a mainstream science. Who were these people? What were their particular agendas or interests? And this is the avenue of thought we're going to explore tonight. So tonight we'll be reading from a very excellent book by Mr. Jim Keith, uh, the late, great Jim Keith, who passed away under mysterious circumstances as a result of uh, a botched surgery uh, that he had gone through. So with that being the case, anything this guy put out, I would highly recommend pick it up and read it because he was one of the very few in the 1990s who was really putting out some solid information about many of these concepts. And in particular... The concepts about mind control, MK Ultra, the various programs of such. Uh, so he had really done a lot to expose these many things, and of course the ties to all of these different sciences to the occult. He was one of the few doing it at the time, and he was probably one of the best researched of some of the early writers in the 1990s that I've seen. Uh, so. Much of the information he put out is foundational to understanding how we got to where we are today. So with that being the case, we're going to read tonight in his book, and of course I will put my commentary in as is the usual case here. Let's begin, shall we? Taking the Psyche out of Psychology Among the basic studies consulted by Rockefeller-funded scientists and others interested in social control at the beginning of this century were those of the official Prussian state psychologist Wilhelm Maximilian Wundt, professor of psychology at the University of Heidelberg. It's fascinating that Wundt's grandfather is mentioned in the Illuminati Provincial Report from Utica at Heidelberg of September 1782, as being the member known as Raphael. Going to pause for a moment there, folks. This may be important in the historical context of things when we take a look back. You remember, have we discussed here before, I think we have, the formation of the Bavarian Order of the Illuminati by one Mr. Adam Weishaupt, professor of canon law at Ingolstadt University back in 1776, and this was something that came on the radar later uh, from some various government officials within the Bavarian government that this secret group existed and was planning to take over the world, essentially, uh, by using different outlets like the secret society groups, the Freemasons and stuff like this, 
as a means to do so, infiltrating these different orders and taking over the world by placing members within prominent positions within government cabinets and various things like that. So this is what was discussed with the founding of the Illuminati. Well, Wilhelm Wundt's grandfather, according to this, was actually a member of the Bavarian Order of Illuminati, and he was identified as the member named Raphael. So, Raphael in the Illuminati, according to this provincial report, the Illuminati provincial report, this is uh, the official report that uh, came down that listed off some of the members, the names that they were known by, and the intelligence was gathered to disband this Bavarian Order of Illuminati, and they were allegedly disbanded in 1790, never to be seen nor heard from again. Yeah, right. <laughs> we know better. Uh, all you have to do is start reading some of the books of the secret societies, and you'll know that this order never was truly disbanded, nor was it originally founded by Weishaupt himself. This was just a particular regional organization, and one name that these people are known by, the Illuminati. So this was the Bavarian Order of the Illuminati. But Wilhelm Wundt's grandfather was one of the members of this group of Bavarian Illuminati, historically identified here uh, by this provincial report. So that being the case, maybe important later to uh, kind of think about. But right now we'll just continue with the reading here. During the period before once ascendancy in the field, psychology was considered to be simply enough the study of the soul or mind, also known as the psyche. Want was to change all that, defining and propagandizing for the materialist viewpoint that would disinform the work of successors like Pavlov, Skinner, and Watson. Wundt took a chair in philosophy at the University of Leipzig in 1875, establishing the world's first psychological laboratory, creating the psychological journal Philosophical Studies, and redefining psychology for this century. Wundt started with characteristic modesty. The work which I present here to the public is an attempt to mark out a new domain in science. Wundt was to remain at the University of Leipzig until his death in 1920. Once doctrine might be characterized as science meets the Hegelian strum and und drang. One of the primary under underpinnings of the New World Order is that its strategy for world conquest originates in the philosophy of Hegel. Hegel was a professor of philosophy at the University of Berlin, and his works formed the basis for both Marxist dialectical materialism and fascist statism. Hegel's stated belief was that man is subordinate to the state and only finds fulfillment in obedience to the dictates of the state. I'm going to pause for a second there, folks. I'm going to repeat that sentence. Let this sink in. Let this sink in. Make sure your socialist and communist friends understand this. This is the whole philosophy that underpins all the Marxist nonsense that the colleges and the universities feed these students, these young minds. Okay, This is the underpinnings thereof. Hegel's stated belief was that man is subordinate to the state and only finds fulfillment in obedience to the dictates of the state. So that's what the whole premise of 
socialism, which is also related to communism, which is also related to democracy, folks. Democracy leads to socialism, leads to communism. This has always been the case. Remember that. Our country, we are not a democracy. We are a representative republic. That's how this nation was formed. And there were very good reasons for this, because the founders understood that democracy always invariably leads to socialism, which always invariably leads to communism. And from communism, always invariably leads to some form of totalitarian fascism. This is an undeniable truth. If you look through history, you can observe this. <laughs> this is a known commodity. But at any rate, these are the foundational principles upon which communism and socialism are based. Hegel's ideas that are put forward here. The Hegelian dialectic, uh, you know, otherwise known in these circles here as the problem-reaction-solution. That's how they define it, problem-reaction-solution, to create a problem, and you use this problem to incite some certain reaction from the public who will demand a resolution to the problem, and then you have a ready-made resolution at hand to solve the problem. The solution, here it is, and that solution always invariably pushes the agendas and the goals of the people in charge and always invariably takes away more and more of the rights of the people. This is how it works. That's Hegelian dialectic. That's the major tool used by those in controlling powers in this world today. And we're going to explore where these ideas came from. And Hegel's one of the main guys that put forward these ideas. And this other fe fellow that we're talking about, Wundt, is another one. But let's continue reading here, because we were just discussing Hegel's stated belief. So let's continue. As he said, the state is the absolute reality, and the individual himself has objective existence, truth and morality only in his capacity as a member of the state. This philosophy can be and has been used for the justification of any number of atrocities committed upon the human race and provides an unexamined substratum to the philosophies of many politicians today. If only the omelet, and he says in parentheses here, the state, is important, what does it matter if we lose a few million eggs, and it says in parentheses here, humans, in the process of cooking up the dish? Hegel was the originator of the theory of the dialectic, the idea that conflict determines history. According to Hegel, a force, or thesis, dictates its own opposing force, or antithesis. These forces in conflict result in the creation of a third force, a synthesis. Out of this synthesis, the process begins again. Marx later revised the theory of the dialectic, insisting that only material events were relevant and that the dialectic was inherent in matter, thus divorcing the idea from metaphysics, at least to his own satisfaction. And I'm going to pause for a second there, folks. So, you see, Marx wanted to separate this from the concepts of metaphysics and philosophy and turn it into the strictly materialist viewpoint. Of course he did, right? That's what this whole era that we live in is about. It's about gross materialism. It's about this hyper-materialist state that we live in. The concept of consumerism, all these other things have been pushed upon us. It's trying to limit 
the potentials of our minds and our spirits. You see, that's what this whole push for materialism is all about. And that's why Marx, with the advent of the dialectic here, he, why he had to separate metaphysical thoughts from this. So he, he used it based strictly upon the material paradigm here. And that's to further entrench people's ideologies into this physical realm. To think only in terms of your five senses. That this here is all that there is. There's nothing beyond this plane. This is all we have. This is where we exist, within this physical world, and there's no spiritual concerns. See, this is the kind of philosophy they have to put forward. This is all the same things that Marxism are based upon. So, I know we're talking about the origins of psychology, and we're kind of side-trailing here into communism, Marxism, socialism, all these different isms, and that's not by accident. Because, you know what, psychology is interlaced with all of these ideologies. The science of psychology does not stand on its own. It has, in its underpinnings, these social ideas, these governmental ideas, these communist-type ideas that are inherent in its study. And they were built into it because of the people that put forward our modern-day psychology. They've, they've removed the psyche from psychology. They've turned it into just strictly something physical. They discuss it in terms of just the physiology. They don't discuss it in terms of the mind. Notice that psychology, what would you say psychology focuses on? Well, it focuses upon the brain, right? And the... Uh, emotions and all of these different things generated by the brain, or that's what they'll tell you. The brain. The brain being the physical aspect of mind. See, they've, they've taken a step away from thinking in terms of spiritual things to strictly material things, like so much of our other science has done. And this is on purpose, and it may seem subtle to people, and maybe some people think, well, you know, that's kind of the only things we could really observe and truly measure and, and quantify here. And that's the whole point. See, that's the whole point. They want to quantify everything, because if they could quantify or measure something, then they could control it. And that's absolutely what they're looking to do. Now, if they have no way to measure some kind of a spiritual aspect of something, or no way to quantify that, something subjective, then it makes it much harder for them to control that thing. And the mind is key to this, the idea of mind as being something separate from the body. That's why they have to try to take that out of the equation, you see. Because even if it's an imperfect science or an imperfect methodology for controlling people, it still is pretty effective for the most part. So if they could fine-tune it well enough, they could get it to some 90-some percentile effectiveness for methods of control. But this is also why our science of psychology today is imperfect and can't always get things right. And why those who suffer with psychological conditions, oftentimes the treatments that they use fail. It's because they've taken the rest of this component out of it, the spiritual component, the component of what is consciousness, what constitutes consciousness, what is mind, what is soul, what is spirit. And it's not just this physical brain that they always attach it to. So this is why... Oftentimes, some of the underlying causes are missed here. And, you know, going at it from strictly the physical context 
is not always effective. It doesn't always work 100% of the time, but it does give them a pretty good idea for mechanisms of control. And even if it's a poor mechanism of control, it gives them some type of way to manipulate the system. Uh, so with that being said, it seems like a divergence from the topic when we talk about things like communism and socialism in the context of psychology. But you'll see, they are interlaced. And there's just no denying that uh, because of the nature of how this was set up in the modern world. So let's continue reading here. From the theory of the dialectic comes the realization that the creation of conflicts can create determined outcomes or syntheses. Those who promote the New World Order again and again are seen to be using the theory of the Hegelian dialectic to bring it about. They are manipulating events, creating conflicts, creating wars, and destroying the lives of untold millions in the bargain. The New World Order is the desired synthesis of the controlling forces operant in the world today. Naturally, the Hegelian system goes completely against the grain of most people, particularly in the West, who view the individual as the true sovereign. Thus, the real enemies are not America versus the Soviets or the political left versus the political right, but those who would manipulate the yin and yang of history. To return to want... Like Marx, he maintained that unless a thing could be scientifically quantified, there was no point in considering it or including it as a factor in scientific investigation. Going to pause for a moment there, folks. I'm going to repeat that because that is the attitude of very many of these people in the modern mainstream movement of what we call science, or what we may refer to as scientism, because it's strayed so far from what actual science is these days that I could barely call it science with a good conscience, because it is, in fact, scientism. It's a belief system more than a, an approach wherein it uses facts, logic, and reason uh, to come to conclusions scientific method, hypotheses, things like this, that science is foundationally supposed to go by. It doesn't do that anymore, <laughs> okay? It's just they take a belief, and then they use mathematics to pound that belief into the heads of the people in the mainstream, and they promote a specific narrative with it. And everything that supports the narrative is accepted as the accepted science, and all the experts agree. But anything else that doesn't match up with that, that gets discredited rather quickly. So I'm going to re repeat that sentence because it's hugely important here because all of our science has this same kind of reaction here, the same kind of attitude. So let's go back to that. To return to want, like Marx, he maintained that unless a thing could be scientifically quantified, there was no point in considering it or including it as a factor in scientific investigation. All psychological studies should be based upon physiology or body reactions. Want essentially redefined psychological studies as studies of the brain and nervous system, and redefined man as an animal without a soul, thus legitimizing, at least for his associates and their employers, the treating of man as such. This, no doubt, was a welcome rationalization for the controllers who could now happily slaughter whomever they pleased without fear of ultimate spiritual retribution or accounting. Going to pause for a moment there, folks. So essentially, our modern psychology, much like all of our other modern sciences, are based upon these type of ideals, 
the strictly physical world ideals, material world ideals, the hyper-materialist paradigm of which I always speak. This is what it's about. They, they want to convince people to believe that there's nothing beyond what your five senses could detect here in this physical plane in which we live. This is all there is, see? And all of your experience, the things you experience, your very consciousness, your idea that you are an individual, a living person with your own individual personality and your own sovereignty and this kind of thing, is an illusion, according to them. It's nothing more than the electrochemical byproduct of the working of your brain and brainstem, you see? So that being the case, you're little more than an animal, you're little more than a living machine, in their view. So they have no qualms with manipulating you or allowing bad things to happen to you because they see you as little more than a physical robot, a flesh robot, essentially. And they view everything as just being part of this way of thinking. What's come since then, and we're going to get back into the history a little bit more here, what's come since then, since the uh, foundational principles that are being exposed here. What's come since then is they've taken cybernetics methodologies and applied them to this new science of psychology, which they founded. And they've used these things to create various models of how they think human consciousness or human cognition works. And they think they've gotten fairly close and they are developing artificial intelligences and stuff based upon this. And uh, you'll hear tell a lot in these different circles, these cybernetic circles, of what they call the Bayesian brain. Okay, the Bayesian brain model. And this is one of the various models that they use to cybernetically control a system. See, they, they're trying to measure and quantify human consciousness with this Bayesian brain model. And this is one of the, the primary focuses that they have in the science of cybernetics right now. Bayesian brain models. So that they use these to try to figure out and map the human mind, the human brain, see how it works, what inputs cause what outputs. This is where it gets to the cybernetics idea. So they see everything as nothing more than it, the concept of inputs and outputs on various levels as how the brain works. And these various inputs and outputs will affect human behaviors and cause these side effects that we call consciousness. And this is what they claim, and this is what they think they finally may have figured out and are applying cybernetic sciences to to try to develop artificial intelligences. Well, this has a lot of different uses. <laughs> so if, if they could build accurate models to manipulate, then they could definitely use these same models to make predictions on how to manipulate the behaviors of living people. And this has been done ad nauseum. But uh, let's get back to the reading here because I'm more interested in laying out the foundations of where this came from so you could understand the principles that were inherent in the development of this modern science called psychology and what its, its whole goal was, which is to separate the idea of the psyche or the soul or the, the mind from the physical human being. That's what it was built for. That's what it was designed for. Uh, so let's read on here. Wundt said, 
It truly appears to be a useless waste of energy to keep returning to such aimless discussions about the nature of the psyche, which were in vogue for a while and practically still are, instead rather of applying one's own energies where they are will proceed real or will produce real results. According to researcher Paolo Leone, for want Will was the direct result of the combination of perceived stimuli, not an independent individual intention as psychology and philosophy had, with some notable exceptions, held up to that time. Once rejection of the intangibles of life, such as soul, mind, and free will, have influenced psychiatry and psychology up to the present day. And now you know why shrinks look so weird and often have nervous tics. They have been taught that they do not have a soul. According to one chronicler of the history of psychology, after once theories became popular, naturally Leipzig became the mecca of students who wished to study the new psychology, a psychology that was no longer a branch of speculative philosophy, no longer a fragment of the science of physiology, but a novel and daring and exciting attempt to study mental processes by the experimental and quantitative methods common to all science. For the psychology of Leipzig was, in the 80s and 90s, the newest thing under the sun. It was the psychology for bold young radicals who believed that the ways of the mind could be measured and treated experimentally, and who possibly thought of themselves in their private reflections as pioneers on the newest frontier of science, pushing its method into reaches of experience that it had never been in, that have never been invaded before. At any rate, they threw themselves into their tasks with industry and zest. They became trained introspectionists, and adding introspection to the resources of the physiological laboratories, they attempted the minute analysis of sensation and perception. They measured reaction times, following their problems into numerous and widespread ramifications. They investigated verbal reactions, thus extending their researches into the field of association. They measured the span and the fluctuations of attention and noted some of its more complex features in the complication experiment, a laboratory method patterned after the situation that gave rise to the astronomer's problem of the personal equation. In their studies of feeling and emotion, they recorded pulse rates, breathing rates, and fluctuations in muscular strength, and in the same connection, they developed methods of recording systematically and treating statistically the impressions observed by introspection. They also developed the psychophysical methods and, in addition, made constant use of resources of the physiological laboratory, and throughout all their endeavors, they were dominated by the conception of a psychology that should be scientific as opposed to speculative. Always they attempted to rely on exact observation, experimentation, and measurement. Finally, when they left Leipzig and worked in laboratories of their own, chiefly in American or German universities, most of them retained enough of the Leipzig impress to teach a psychology that whatever the subsequent development of the individual's thought bore traces of the system which were recognized at Leipzig as orthodox. And I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. I know that sounded like a lot. And essentially he was talking about the uh, 80s and 90s there. Well, he was referring to the 1880s and 1890s. The early days of this psychological science, this new science, 
So we see here the foundations of it were principally telling us that they wanted to step away from concepts like spiritual things, soul, ego, mind, and focus only on the physiological aspects of it and be able to attach the physiological aspects of it to these various ideas that they had. They wanted to be able to quantify and measure this whole concept of psychology, the human mind. So in so doing, they've come up with a science to do so. That's what we see with our modern psychology. It's largely based on only tangible things, measurable things. And that being the case, it does have some effects for modifying behaviors and such. It does have some effects on physiology. But here's the problem. It, it overlooks the spiritual concern. It overlooks the idea of the more philosophical side of things, which is an undeniable fact of human life. We have unexplained phenomena all around us. We have inexact ways of thinking about consciousness, thinking about perception. And all of these things are not easily quantifiable or measurable as the science would like them to be. But they get pretty close at times. There's still an awful lot they don't understand about the human mind. There's still far more about the human mind that they don't understand than the things that they do claim to understand. You see? But they, they're more interested in results. That's the bottom line here. They're not interested in trying to learn more about how the human mind actually truly works. They're concerned with results. How do we change this system? You see, that's what it's about. How do we introduce changes into the system? It's results-driven. So they look at physiological aspects as the main thing because this is one of the easiest things that they could control. If they know various physical reactions to different stimuli, then they can manipulate those to get a certain reaction that they want, right? This is what it's all about. So this is why they try to quantify human behavior in terms of physiological response. And it's, it's a science that is effective to some degree. And they could do a lot of things with it, make a lot of predictions based upon it. And really, you know, they, they have a good amount of accuracy in the things they've done because of all the experiments and stuff they've done through the years based upon the physiological aspects thereof. So you could argue the point that, yes, it's not a 100% effective science, so to say, but at the same time, they do have a pretty good success rate with the things that they, they try to achieve with it. And that being the case, it's a pretty good model. It gives them some type of manipulation ability that is what they're looking for. See, because they're not concerned about actually learning the ins and outs of the true human psyche. They're more interested in controlling the animal. And that's the way they view it. They're more interested in controlling the animal. It doesn't matter what you think or feel as long as you behave in the way they want you to behave. You see, it's results-driven, once again. And this is a lot of the same things that uh, many of the modern psychological sciences are based upon. Uh, like uh, you have ABA, Applied Behavioral Analysis. This is something that's used very heavily with uh, a lot of children these days. They, they use, they document the way the children behave, and they try to decrease the number of actions of this sort that they, they take. Uh, I'll, I'll use in behavioral psychology what they, what they do as an example here. 
So with this ABA, this, this applied behavioral analysis, they will observe the child. They'll go, like, say, to school with the child and say the child has a, a problem with inattention or something like that. They will record in a little notebook or, a, you know, a laptop or whatever they take with them now. Uh, they'll record the number of times this child has deviated from the desired action, uh, you know, participating in school where they've become distracted or something. They will mark this down a number of times throughout the course of the day. And then they will suggest, they'll look for what do they think actually was the causal factor that caused this distraction for the child. So then they will make suggestions on how to reduce distractions for the child and decrease the number of times this happens per day. So they'll use data this is the key point. They use this kind of data to do this kind of stuff. So then they will apply these changes that they need, like maybe, uh, say, the child sitting by the window. So they will gaze out the window. Well, moving the child away from the window or to a classroom with no windows may help to correct this problem. So they may see a reduction in the number of those behaviors during the course of the day. So they'll make these changes to modify the behaviors. And through the course of time, they will try to ingrain these behaviors in the child that way. They'll try to use positive reinforcement to make the child behave the way they want them to behave and to not have the various distractions that were taking the child off topic or off, off task. So this is one of the ways that they use it, right? Applied behavioral analysis. And that's just one tool that they use to do this stuff. But at any rate, this is what it is. It's a results-driven thing. It doesn't really care about the needs or the feelings of the child. It's all about altering the child's behavior. You see, it's results-driven. There, there's no uh, aspect of psyche involved with that. It's just this physical measurement that they could use. And they measure the success based upon this physical measurement. So has the child reduced the number of incidents where he's not paying attention? Yes, then they see that as a total success. It, then they've resolved the issue in their view, even though nothing's really been done in the mind of the child. <laughs> it's just that uh, it's, it's something they can quantify and see as a change in behavior. So this is how they monitor a lot of the outcomes in psychological science is based upon these data-driven things or these trends. Uh, so with that the case, what are they truly altering there? Now, sometimes they'll use medications to alter behaviors and stuff like that. And sometimes that does have an effect where it will alter uh, certain aspects of the psyche as well, because there's an inherent danger with all of that as well. But at any rate, they're more concerned with the outcome, the results. Okay, results driven, just here in the physical, looking at it from a physical perspective. That's what they want. Uh, so understanding that, let's move forward here and continue reading and see what else uh, many of these founding fathers of the modern science of psychology had to say what kind of opinions and attitudes they had. The essence of once research was that man was a machine, albeit a soft one. Wundt also went along with the Hegelian axiom that man was simply a cog in the greater machine of the state. Was it just a coincidence that Wundt and his cohorts funded by and working with the Prussian military and political establishment, provided the justification for treating humanity as individual pieces of nearly valueless machinery to be tinkered with or destroyed at will. 
Wundt, along with other Hegelians, rejected the moral equation in dealing with mankind, thereby putting man in a test tube, and by doing so opened the door to many of the atrocities that followed in this century including the horrors of mind control. Another mainstay in the arsenal of elitist mind control research was the work of Ivan Petrovich Pavlov, who studied physiology at Leipzig in 1884, five years after Wundt, and had a laboratory there, and first worked at the St. Petersburg Military Medical Academy in Russia. In 1906, Pavlov cut holes in dogs' cheeks and inserted tubes to measure salivation. A bell was rung just before the food was given to the dogs, and after a period of time, it was observed that the ringing of the bell alone would increase the rate of the dog's salivation. The observation that responses could be so precisely conditioned was then brainstormed to apply to the mental processes of humans, and Pavlov's successors, the shrinks and social controllers, have continued ringing their bells, selectively keeping us drooling ever since. Shortly after Pavlov was driving dogs crazy in Russia, John B. Watson at Johns Hopkins University, the Hegel hotbed for the United States, was doing the same thing to humans. Watson, the founder of what is known as the behaviorist school of psychology, but is really only research following in the dark shadow of want, believed that complex forms of behavior could be programmed into humans. He conducted one experiment in which a young boy named Little Albert, or identified as Little Albert, was given a white rat to play with. After the boy became accustomed to the rat, Watson would beat on the floor with a steel bar every time the rat was brought in. The boy was understandably terrified by such lunatic behavior and eventually reacted with terror every time the rat was given to him, and finally whenever any furry animal was around him. Dr. Watson himself drooled over the possibilities of this kind of mechanical conditioning of human beings. Give me the baby and I'll make it climb and use its hands in constructing buildings of stone or wood. I'll make it a thief, a gunman, or a dope fiend. The possibilities of shaping in any direction are almost endless. Men are built, not born, Watson later became, a highly successful advertising executive, although there are no records available of what happened to Little Albert. Going to pause for a moment there, folks. Have you ever heard of Little Albert? Have you heard that story before? This is only one of the very many shocking things that have been done in the name of the science of psychology in the modern era. And these are the psychopaths that did this stuff. Think about that. There has to be something mentally wrong with you to take uh, an interest in torturing people in this type of way just to see what could be done. And like I said, uh, there's always these ties back to communism and socialism and all these different avenues of thought that are attached fundamentally just by proxy to the science of psychology. They're inherently ingrained together because the ideology that underlies both of them are the same. It's all about forcing man into a more materialistic type paradigm, the hyper-material paradigm, forcing man's mind to accept the physical world as being the absolute end-all, be-all of everything. And if that's the case, then they could institute different ways to quantify various behaviors and effectuate controls in that way. You see, it's, it's about the ends always justifying the means for these people. They don't care about the human psyche. They don't care about the human soul. They are all about 
just changing the behaviors to suit their needs. You see, they're results driven. They want to see results and they see manipulating the physiological form of man in this way as being a results-oriented way of working. It works to a certain degree with them, doesn't it? So that's where this has come from. Doesn't care at all about what a man's internal feelings are about something. That doesn't have anything to do with it. It's results-driven. It's all about the outcome. And that's why they will continue to throw all these pharmaceutical drugs at everything as well. Because there may be some underlying spiritual problem somebody's dealing with. But rather than dealing with it, they'll just look at the physiological symptoms and say, here's a medication for that. Take this medication. And then they get uh, a bunch of other side effects and have much more problems. And then they give them more medications and more medications. And it works this way with a lot of things. With our modern science. Uh, and, and this is what's been done in, in the name of psychology here. It's become an aspect, a subscience of physiology in many regards. It doesn't have anything to do with human thought or this kind of thing, the human psyche at all. It's driven by physiology. The brain, see, they, they've really shifted gears from sometime in the late 1700s on forward here, shifting in their thinking in thinking in more philosophical ways, in terms of the mind being something separate from the brain, and they focus solely on the brain as the seat of human consciousness. You see, when that may not necessarily be the case. All right? The brain is just the receiver, but they see it as being the whole enchilada. It's the seat of human consciousness, in their view. And that being the case, if they could manipulate the physiology thereof, then they could manipulate the human consciousness. That's their viewpoint. In the late 1930s, Harvard psychologist Burhus Frederick B.F. Skinner, an unapologetic student of one's theories and a member of the U.S. Army Intelligence, fine-tuned the art of human control into what he termed operant conditioning. Becoming a guru to generations of mind shapers that followed, his simple and quite familiar by this time notion was that the reinforcement of a repeated negative stimulus or punishment or a positive stimulus or reward formed the basis for learned behavior. Skinner's early experiments produced pigeons that could dance, do figure eights, and play table tennis. His experiments did not stop with pigeons. Skinner's most famous invention, aimed at producing a socialized child, was the environmentally controlled Skinner box, a crib-sized container into which he put scores of children, including his own. His ultimate aim was not only to control the behavior of isolated persons, but to gain insights into how to control society as a whole. I'm going to pause for a second there, folks. What has to be wrong with somebody to put their own children in a box like this and isolate them just to see what the result would be. Think about that. These are deranged individuals, many of the people that uh, founded the science of psychology. And this kind of stuff is still being done in the quote-unquote name of science today by many of these same type psychopaths that see themselves as, well, we're doing something good. We're trying to understand how the human brain works. You see, we're trying to figure out how to how this all works so that we can help people, regardless of how they're harming people with their experiments and stuff like that. They, they still see it that way. 
But, you know, you can take that all with a grain of salt, as I always advise you. But at any rate, let's continue reading. Skinner's most explicit statement of his philosophy, ultimately one of world control, is contained in his book Walden II, written in 1948. The book describes a perfect communist utopia run along behavioralist lines. And I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. Once again, you see, foundationally, psychology and communism are interrelated. Understand? Because psychology is the science which communists would like to use to engineer the utopia that they seek. This is what they attempt to do with it. This is why it's always been there from the very foundations of the modern science known as psychology. Communism, it's one of the inherent factors therein. Because it's about control. It's not about trying to uh, figure out what makes a human being tick for the purpose of helping them. No, it's about control. That's absolutely all it's ever been about. Let's read on. In Walden II, societies run by Fraser, a straw man designed to dramatize Skinner's beliefs about human conditioning. Below Fraser, in the pigeon-pecking order, are six planners who in turn run managers who are held responsible for the controllees who perform the mental tasks of daily life. Members of the Walden II Society follow a puritanical code of conduct that applies to virtually every aspect of day-to-day -day life, including the forbidding of midnight snacks. Education is a subset of human engineering, and children are turned over to the group by the parents. Home is no place to raise children, drawls Fraser. His philosophy, one that has seemingly been adopted by many current-day shrinks and social workers. The essence of Walden, too, is the application of positive and negative reinforcement to create a smoothly running state, free of such unwanted encumbrances as crime and choice. Skinner followed up his vision of Walden II in 1971 with his vastly hyped nonfiction book, Beyond Freedom and Dignity, awarded the honor of being the most important book of the year by the New York Times. What is needed is more control, not less, Skinner reminded us. It may be revelatory that throughout his life, Skinner was interested in mechanical contraptions, even working for years on a perpetual motion machine. His view of the composition of human beings was no less mechanical, a vision which characterizes the philosophies of most psychiatrists to this day. This atheist materialist viewpoint, again, provides a justification for the atrocities which are daily committed in the name of science. How can it be ethical to tinker with or even destroy a human if, in fact, he is really only a machine? With B.F. Skinner, the philosophy of psychological control was finely honed. Although many psychologists today insist that the behaviorist vision of a controlled world is crude and outdated, and that a docile society cannot be engineered by science, they protest too much. The behaviorist doctrine, forecast by Hegel, invented by Wundt, and fostered by a legion of followers in science and education, is firmly in place in the halls of academia and in the offices of population-shaping worldwide, are being applied at every level of society. The elite could not be happier if the whole world was placed in a Skinner box. <laughs> and I'm going to pause for a second there, folks. So we see that uh, this idea 
these ideas were first purported by Wundt and rolled out by guys like Skinner. And we have this whole big machine today, so to say, that is the machine of psychological science. And they've taken it to academia. And this is where most of their ideas have become applied in academia. Because if you get the children young, you could condition them young. Then as they get older, they will, will not protest so much if they're conditioned to accept certain things. So this is a, a huge point here that was made. And, you know, they make the reference here to the Prussians and the Prussian education system. And we're going to read on here because we're going to touch on a little bit of that. One of the major world arenas in which Hegelian philosophy and the materialistic anti-psychology of Wundt has been applied is that of education. In 1819 in Prussia, the first compulsory schooling for children was instituted. According to educator John Taylor Gatto, society in Prussia was divided into children who will become policymakers, children who will become assistants to policymakers, and it says in parentheses, the engineers, architects, lawyers, and doctors, and the children who will be the vast mass used. Prussia sets up a three-tier school system in which one-half of one percent of the population is taught to think. They go to school called academy. Five and a half percent of the population go to what's called real schulen, where they partially learn to think, but not completely, because Prussia believed their defeat at the hands of Napoleon was caused by people thinking for themselves at times of stress on the battlefield. They were going to see to it that scientifically this couldn't happen. The lowest 94%, that's some pyramid, right, went to Volkschulen, where they were to learn harmony, obedience, freedom from stressful thinking, how to follow orders. They worked out a system that would in fact guarantee such results. In the Volkschulen, it was to divide whole ideas which really simultaneously participate in math, science, social thinking, language, and art into subjects which hardly had existed before, to divide the subjects further into units, to divide the time into small enough units of time. With enough variations in the course of a day, no one would know what was going on. In the middle of the last century, a member of the secret Skull and Bones Society, following in the Prussian tradition, set in motion an American educational revolution that has subverted the entire system toward the goals of the New World Order. That man was Daniel Colt Gilman, first president of Johns Hopkins University and of the Carnegie Institution. Gilman studied Hegelian philosophy at the University of Berlin in 1854 to 1855. Also at the University of Berlin during the time was the earlier mentioned Wilhelm Wundt, who was key in applying Hegelian-styled psychology to the world. Gilman came from a family of bonesmen, and after he returned from Germany, in 1856 became treasurer of Skull and Bones. Simultaneously, Gilman became assistant librarian at Yale and was appointed to the position of head librarian two years later. During the same period, Skull and Bones covertly took over the administration of Yale University with the presidency of the school from that period forward turned over to a succession of illuminized bonesmen, according to the iconoclast October 13, 1873. They have obtained control of Yale. Its business is performed by them. 
Money paid to the college must pass into their hands and must be subject to their will. No doubt they are worthy men in themselves, but the many whom they looked down upon will in college cannot so far forget as to give money freely into their hands. Men in Wall Street complain that college comes straight to them for help instead of asking each graduate for his share. The reason is found in a remark made by one of Yale's and America's first men, Few will give but bonesmen, and they care for more for their society than they do for the college. The Woolsey Fund has but a struggling existence for kindred reasons. Here, then, appears the true reason for Yale's poverty. She is controlled by a few men who shut themselves off from others and assume to be their superiors. Gilman met with Frederick T. Gates, who ran Rockefeller's foundations, and he implored him to set up the Southern Educational Board, merging the Slater and Peabody funds. Going to pause for a second there, folks. Frederick T. Gates. Now, Bill Gates claims this is not a relative of his, but uh, you guys make the decision on that. So, yeah, that's that's the claim here. This guy, oh, it has nothing to do with Bill Gates. They're not related in any way. No, of course not. It's just the same last name and the same uh, shady circumstances and same uh, company they keep. But, eh, you know, forget about that. Let's continue on here. Gilman was the first president of Johns Hopkins University, and he carefully chose for the faculty members from the Skull and Bones and other groups of the Hegelian Stripe. Among those was G. Stanley Hall, the first of once American students to make a mark. Hall's training in Leipzig was paid for by a loan from a member of Scroll and Key, the sister society to Skull and Bones at Yale. In Leipzig, Hall immersed himself in Hegelian-inspired psychological studies taught by materialist psychologists like Hartman, Helmholtz, and his greatest influence, Wundt. Returning to America in 1883, he took over the psychological laboratory at the new Johns Hopkins and started the American Psychological Association and the American Journal of Psychology. According to Hall... The psychology I taught was almost entirely experimental and covered, for the most part, the material that Wundt had set forth in the later and larger edition of Physiological Psychology. In 1889, Hall was chosen as the first president of the newly established Clark University in Worcester, Massachusetts. Hall was the mentor of one of the most influential names in American education of this century, one Mr. John Dewey. Have you heard of John Dewey, folks? The guy that invented the Dewey Decimal System? This guy had a lot of say in American education. Dewey studied under Hall at Johns Hopkins, moving on to teach at the universities of Michigan and Minnesota. Another major influence upon Dewey was the Hegelian philosopher George Sylvester Morris, who had received his doctorate from the University of Berlin, according to Dewey, echoing the sentiments of his Prussian mentors. There is no God and there is no soul. There are no needs for the props of traditional religion. With dogma and creed excluded, then immutable truth is also dead and buried. There is no room for fixed natural law or permanent moral absolutes. Going to pause for a second there, folks. That's John Dewey. That is one of the foundational people who set up the American education system. Did you hear all of that? This is what they, they believe. This is what modern psychology is based upon. 
these types of teachings. This is what our modern education system is based upon. And these are also the tenets of communism, all interweaved together, brought about together by the very same people and promulgated forward along the same lines. And then you wonder, why are we in the state that we're in? Well, all the things we promote are essentially the workings of uh, this small group that wants to take over the world here. They want to rule through some type of a communist-type system, a utopia that they want to build here, where everybody behaves properly because they're conditioned to do so using scientific methodologies based upon physiology. And this is the whole premise here, because they think man is only fully fulfilled when he serves the state. That's what these foundational psychologists, these ones that founded this modern science of psychology, that's what they believed, that's what they worked towards, that's what they founded the principles thereof upon. So they think man is nothing more than a fleshly machine of sorts that could be manipulated and used, and that the needs or wants of man should be subservient to that of the state, because he's just a big cog in the wheel, you see. And the state should take precedent overall. This is some of the core tenets upon which the science of our modern psychology is built, along with our educational system concurrently with that. Because it's not about educating people, right? It's, it's like I said, it's not about the human psyche or understanding how human beings work for the betterment of all mankind. It's only about deriving results. They just want results, right? They want to be able to achieve these things by through results, solid results, through quantification of different properties and the, the ability to measure these properties. They could derive results. That's what they're concerned with. And they've taken over the education system, primarily, these psychologists, these early psychologists. That's why our school system today, it's not about learning. It's not a learning environment. It's indoctrination. This is exactly why. It's the psychologists who pretty much brought that into being here. John Dewey, he had a major part in this. These were his beliefs. This is what he studied. This is what he wanted. These were the ideologies that he was promoting. But let's read on. Dewey published the first American textbook on Hegelian philosophy as applied to the Wantian psychological innovations in his book, Psychology. In 1895, he joined the faculty at the Rockefeller-funded University of Chicago, heading the philosophy, psychology, and teaching departments, and establishing an education laboratory called the Dewey School, later known as the Laboratory School of the University of Chicago. Dewey followed the Wantian example in his insistence that education was not the teaching of mental skills such as reading and writing, but in the channeling of raw experiences to the evolving of the child, a sort of psychic Skinner's box version of education. The traditional role of the teacher as educator was replaced by the teacher as shrink, socializer, eugenicist, and herald of the coming world superstate. Dewey believed that the purpose of public schools was to, quote, take an active part in determining the social order of the future, according as the teachers align themselves with the newer forces, making for social control of economic forces, end quote. 
Dewey also remarked that, quote, the school is primarily a social institution. Education being a social process, the school is simply that form of community life in which all those agencies are concentrated that will be most effective in bringing the child to share in the inherited resources of the race and to use his own powers for social ends. Education, therefore, is a process of living and not a preparation for future living, end quote. For Dewey, the issue was always how the child related to the state rather than how the state related to the child. Another student of Wundt, who was to prove to be perhaps the most successful popularizer of the new psychology that abolished the psyche, was James McKean Cattell. Cattell was once assistant in Leipzig in the years 1883 to 1886, receiving his Ph.D. from the Grand Old Man in 1886. Lecturing in Cambridge in 1887, Cattell met and was converted to social Darwinism by Darwin's cousin, the English psychologist Sir Francis Galton, the man responsible for the popularization at the beginning of this century of the science of eugenics and selective breeding. In 1887, Cattell established at the University of Pennsylvania a psychological laboratory of the Wuntian mold, then moved on in 1891 to head the new psychology department at Columbia University. Cattell was tremendously influential in disseminating the new overtly materialist psychology and did so by establishing a host of magazines, including the Psychological Review, Science, Scientific Monthly, and School and Society. He also published reference works, including American Men of Science, Leaders in Education, and the Directory of American Scholars, an effective strategy for screwing Wuntian school psychologists into the mainstream of American thought. Another of Cattell's questionable feats was the abolition of the use of phonics methods for teaching reading. Cattell popularized the look-say method of teaching reading, a technique that, according to some sources, had been invented by Thomas Hopkins Galadut for teaching the deaf. Although Galadut was not a member of Skull and Bones, two of his sons attended Yale and were initiated into the secret society. Following upon the insight of Gallaudet in teaching the deaf, Cattell came to the conclusion that the direct memorization of words would increase literacy if applied to normal students. Experience in subsequent years has not proven this to be the case. Obviously, and one byproduct of Cattell's advocacy of the look-say theory, is that as we approach the 21st century, millions of American adults cannot read or write at all. The whole story about Gallaudet may, in fact, be a sanitization of what actually happened. Educator John Taylor Gatto attributes the look-say method to the Prussian system of schooling, where this system of not teaching reading was used essentially to disadvantage all but the privileged class. Gatto says, So they figured out that by replacing the alphabet system of teaching reading, we teach sounds. The Prussian system was a whole sentence system rather than a whole word system. You memorize whole sentences. If they could get the kids and keep them from reading well for the first six and seven years, then it didn't matter after that. They had broken the link between printed information. 
Possibly the most effective Trojan horse for injecting the Wontian theory of man as machine into the American education establishment was an individual, James Earl Russell, who studied under and received his doctorate from Wont in 1894. Russell became dean of the New York College for the training of teachers, which he would run for 30 years while heavily weighing its faculty with practitioners of the Wontian school, at the same time turning into the largest institution for the training of teachers in the country. Another luminary in the shrink-wrapping of American education was Edward Lee Thorndike, who studied with Wontians Armstrong and Judd at Wesleyan University, graduating in 1895. Thorndike moved on to Columbia University, where he specialized in studying animals in puzzle box mazes, finally finding his niche at Teachers College under Russell. According to Thorndike, teaching was, quote, the art of giving and withholding stimuli with the result of producing or preventing certain responses. In this definition, the terms stimulus is used widely for any event which influences a person, for a word spoken to him, a look, a sentence which he reads, the air he breathes, etc., etc. The term response is used for any reaction made by him, a new thought, a feeling of interest, a bodily act any mental or bodily condition resulting from the stimulus. The aim of the teacher is to produce desirable and prevent undesirable changes in human beings by producing and preventing certain responses. The means at the disposal of the teacher are the stimuli which can be brought to bear upon the pupil, the teacher's words, gestures, and appearance, the condition and appliances of the schoolroom, the books to be used, and objects to be seen, and so on, through a long list of the things and events which the teacher can control, end quote. That was a very long sentence, wasn't it, folks? But you get the idea what this Thorndike guy was about, right? So you see, they, they don't care in the education system about actually teaching, right? They, they don't care about kids learning. It's not about education. It's about control. Like we've said, it's indoctrination. It's teaching these, uh, these young students to be obedient. That's what it's about. It's indoctrination. So the psychologists of this period, the founders of the modern science of psychology, they have heavily infiltrated the education system and have steered it in this direction. And I think we're seeing a breaking point happening in society today because people have had about enough of this, you see. So at any rate... We, we see the harm that's been done in the name of science. And that's not to say anybody who studies psychology or gets into teaching or anything like that is bad or purposely knows what they're doing here. These are just the, the concepts and precepts that they're taught in how to deal with students and with patients and stuff like that. They're taught that, uh, you know, the science is settled, right? They understand uh, these various things. And it all has to do with strictly physiological aspects of things doesn't it, in the view of our modern science and psychology. And if you could alter the various physical stimuli in the narrative here, then you could change the behaviors of the people. That's essentially what's been done here. It's all about behavior modification, always has been, always will be. It has nothing to do with the well-being of other human beings. And, and even though some of these people that study psychology or get into education their heart's in the right place. The things that they're taught and indoctrinated with 
just further entrench these ideas, further entrench the hyper-materialist viewpoint, and further entrench the indoctrination that's gone on in society, and further distance the idea of the psyche or the soul from the actual human being themselves, you see, because that's what this has been designed to do. It's the separating of these metaphysical-type ideas from society and just steering mankind into thinking in this materialist viewpoint, as we always talk about here. So let's continue reading here, though. Thorndike further stated, quote, Studies of the capacities and interests of young children indicate the advisability of placing little emphasis before the age of six upon either the acquisition of those intellectual resources, known as the formal tools, reading, spelling, arithmetic, writing, etc., or upon abstract intellectual analysis. Despite rapid progress in the right direction, the program of the average elementary school is too narrow and academic in character. Traditionally, the elementary school has been primarily devoted to teaching the fundamental subjects, the three R's, and closely related disciplines. Artificial exercises like drills on phonetics, multiplication tables, and formal writing movements are used to a wasteful degree. Subjects such as arithmetic, language, and history include content that is intrinsically of little value. Nearly every subject is enlarged unwisely to satisfy the academic ideal of thoroughness. That the typical school overemphasizes instruction in these formal academic skills as a means of fostering intellectual resources is a justifiable criticism. Elimination of unessentials by scientific study then is one step in improving the curriculum, end quote. The emphasis by Thorndike and his fellows on the socialization of the student, in fact, the subjugation of the student to the social order, as opposed to the teaching of specific skills is another factor that has led to a general breakdown of literacy in the United States, while at the same time providing no noticeable increase in the ability to socialize. In fact, obviously, the contrary. And I'm going to pause there, folks. Is that not a true statement? Is that not a true statement? You see, we have such a breakdown in understanding in society. The education of people today is is far inferior to what it was 100 years ago. Like your average college student anymore does not have the equivalent of an 8th grade education of 100 years ago. It's It's really a sad state of affairs. And this is why, because it's all about social engineering. See, that's what psychology and that's what the education system is all about. It's social engineering. It's engineering a society into this communist utopia that they seek to do. And it's always been this way for as far back as we could look. There's always been the select few people in this world who seek to control others for their own agendas and their own purposes. And they just want to have harmony, right? It's all about harmony. They want this harmonious system that works based upon, well, I can't say based upon, but what they have based it upon is this fear narrative, wherein people will fall in line with whatever the dictate is, because to not do so would be to be socially ostracized, to not be allowed in the system, or to be punished in some way, shape, or form. You see, it's the whole operant conditioning coming into play here. 
So we've been conditioned, very much so, to try to fit in. That's why socialization is like one of the big things that's pushed with the school system. That's why, uh, you know, when I was thinking about uh, homeschooling my kids, well, the question always came up with people, well, aren't you scared, you know, that they they won't get any kind of socialization? They won't uh, know how to interact with people? I'm like, no, I'm not worried about that. I have six kids. <laughs> I mean, they have plenty of other people to socialize with here. But that's always the main concern. Uh, if you think about or talk about or talk to somebody at the public school about pulling your kid out of the public school and homeschooling, that's always the first thing they ask. Well, well, that's no good for their socialization. Really? No. Well, maybe that's the whole point. Maybe they don't need this kind of socialization because it's social conformity and social control. It's social engineering. That's what's going on in the school systems today. So that whole scenario, that's always one of the first things I've always noticed. Anytime you would mention maybe pulling your kid out of school or something, that's one of the first things they'll say is, oh, well, they need that social interaction. They, they won't get socialization. Well, yeah, they do. They just get it in a different way or in a different place, in a different manner than they do in school because we're not about socially indoctrinating them into accepting this kind of a narrative here. But uh, at any rate, that's neither here nor there, but that does directly relate to this this whole scenario here of what's being spoken of. Uh, so I find that to be an absolutely true statement here. Uh, so at any rate, let's continue reading here. The emphasis by Thorndike and his fellows on the socialization of the student, in fact, the subjugation, of the student to the social order, as opposed to teaching specific skills, is another factor that has led to a general breakdown of literacy in the United States, while at the same time providing no noticeable increase in the ability to socialize. In fact, obviously the contrary. And like I said, that's a true statement, and it was worthy of repeating there. Uh, so let's continue on, though. Thorndike believed that education is interested primarily in the general interaction of man and his environment in all the changes which make possible a better adjustment of human nature to its surroundings. This is another important aspect of Thorndike's and all of the other Latter-day Wantians' philosophies. Man is an animal who must adapt to the environment that is the social system and political regime rather than adapting the environment to his own vision. Man is to be conditioned to accept the circumstances that he finds himself in, not learn to change them. Again, the controlling elite have no qualms about changing society or the environment to conform to their own whims. Even if it takes dozing a rainforest, it is only the rebellious public schooled who must have the devastating defect of individuality brainwashed out of them. The socialization techniques used by the Wantians create robots, not sociable people. Working out the teacher's college at Columbia University and the later established Lincoln School, and dependent upon a steady infusion of Rockefeller money, the major lights in the field of Wantian psychology, including Thorndike, Cattell, Russell, and Dewey, kick-started educational psychology, remaking the face of American schooling. And many of these disciples of want were very straightforward in proclaiming that the purpose of educational psychology was the creation of a new world order. 
By the 1950s, the teacher's college was indisputably the most powerful force in education in America, with approximately one-third of all school presidents and deans and one-fourth of all American teachers accredited there. It must have been reassuring to the Rockefellers and their ilk to see that materialistic psychology and education had won and was now accepted as the norm in America in the American school systems. All right, folks, we're going to wrap it up right there for tonight. The foundations of modern psychology are all intertwined with the ideologies known as communism and Marxism, all of these other isms. So we have a lot of concerns with our modern psychology. It's all based upon materialistic viewpoints, the hyper-materialist paradigm, convincing people that there is no metaphysic or no spiritual no other aspects to existence other than this physical world, this physical place we live, and that all of our conscious behaviors, all of our conscious understanding, our consciousness itself, is nothing more than the byproduct of some physiological process. You see, that's the, what they've been taught. That's how they've geared up this whole system of psychology, and they've rolled it out into the American education system. And in so doing, they've infiltrated every corner of our society through the years here, through many generations now of indoctrination through schooling and various other things and through the entrenching of ideologies within science uh, and particularly the science of psychology. They've used physiological aspects of things to reinforce their ideas and they've come up with ways to quantify various aspects of human behavior and in so doing being able to quantify something creates a scenario wherein you could control that very thing so in so doing they could modify behaviors it's all results oriented they don't care about the actual nature of mankind of the human mind or anything of the sort they couldn't care less about the human psyche what it is the human soul the human mind they couldn't care less about any of that they are focused on the strictly physical paradigm here, the physiological paradigm. Everything is just the byproduct of a physiological condition, you see. That's what they believe. That's what they teach. That's why we have atheism being mainstreamed. We have uh, secularism being mainstreamed. We have agnosticism being mainstreamed. We have all of these different ideologies being put forth that are contrary to anything spiritual, contrary to anything that does not pertain to this physical realm we live in. This is why they're trying to steer human consciousness into this little box of being something manipulatable through physical means. And they've been pretty successful at putting this program out. And I just wanted to point out tonight, these are the origins of modern psychology, they're all intertwined with this same small group of people that have their ties back to the secret society groups, once again, as we led off the program with. Once grandfather was a member of the Bavarian Illuminati, known as Raphael. This is a historical fact, folks. And all of these same guys, all through these same small circles, all have these ties to these secret society groups. This is where much of the mind control programming and stuff comes from. This is where much of the known techniques for manipulating human behavior come from. 
They've just adopted it and shifted it into the modern science of psychology. They found a new name for it, and they found new ways to steer people with it by manipulating just this physical, material world paradigm with these things. So finding ways to use mathematics as a primary tool here for various things, quantifying different ideas, being able to quantify something gives you a measure of control over it. If you could quantify it, if you could count it, if you could measure it, then you could find a way to control it using mathematics. And this is one of the primary energy sciences, and it's, it's inherent in everything. Uh, so understanding this, these people came up and formulated ways to steer social behaviors in society. So essentially, the science of psychology in its modern iteration here is little more than the science of social engineering. And they've proven it by using it to branch out and take over the education system and to do these various other things with it. And they've inculcated their ideas into the mainstream now. And they've been there for several generations. And it's really coming to a head in the world today now that we could see before us. So with that being the case, I think it's good that we understand the origins of these things. Because if you know where they came from and what their original intent was, then you can know a little something more about them. So it's important that we put stuff like this out there on the record. That's why I wanted to explore this tonight, because I I see what the original intent here is, and it's not for the betterment of mankind as a whole. It's not for anybody's own mental health or physical health or anything of the sort. It's not for educating the children, giving them a means forward here. It's only about indoctrination, control, and social engineering. They want to engineer mankind into this utopia. Pick up that book, Walden 2. Okay? Pick it up. Read through it. This is another model for things to come in many ways. We've seen so much of this in books like Brave New World, books like 1984. A lot of these guys put this out here. I mean, it's out there in the public forum. You could find these things anywhere and read them. And although they've been given to us in the form of fiction, it is a, a type of foreshadowing of things to come. We, we see the same thing with science fiction, right? Look at the science fiction writing to know what's going to happen within the next couple of years. <laughs> You'll understand a little more when it actually comes to fruition. It's always the way that things are presented first in fictional form. And then we see them start to manifest in the real world. Uh, because it's a comfortable tool that these people use to put their ideas out there that they want to see come to fruition. So that being the case, we, we could know a little something by knowing the original intent here. So that's the whole point tonight. Knowing the intent of psychology, knowing the intent of education, or the systems that, we, that they call psychology and education, which do not really do either of the things psychology does not study the psyche the psyche's been taken right out of it and education or education system it doesn't educate it indoctrinates because it's a tool of the psychological conditioning here see uh, so that's what's been done here in the name of science and this all falls in line with the times we're living in folks
So we see this stuff being revealed in front of our eyes. It's the time of revelation. The veil's being torn away. All these things that have been done in secret for the past how many years are now coming to full view of the people. And it's how we respond to it. That's the important thing. Now, there's still a lot of cognitive dissonance out there. People don't want to believe that they've been duped in so many ways, lied to in so many ways, manipulated in so many ways through the years. But here it is. It's the time of revelation, folks. We're seeing stuff now. that It's been going on for longer than we've been aware of it, but it's always been there. But now it's just out in the open, whereas before it was done secretly. And I'll tell you what, there's a lot of people that aren't happy with the things that they see because they realize now what's been done. So it's just a matter of how do we move forward with a lot of this. That's, that's the whole key to everything here. How do we move forward? I think it's important that we expose this stuff, understand the original intent. Because if you understand the original intent, then you could apply some new intent to things being done and come up with new systems and do new things with better intentions behind them. Rather than following these old same paradigms, these old same systems that they've set up for us, falling in line with systems. See, that's what, uh, you know, the that want was talking about. How man should be subservient to the state. The state will set up the systems and the men will, and mankind will fall in line and obey and find fulfillment in that. That's not how mankind works. That's not how the heart and soul of man works. We want something better for our children. We want something better for ourselves. We don't want to just fall in line with the system and do what we're told and, you know, feel like we we're doing something important that way. And that's not the case at all. But that's how Wundt described it, that man should be subservient to the state. And that's not the case. Individuality is what's sovereign here. The rights of the individual, the I am in us. That's what's really important. And that's what they're trying to divide from us in this way. By taking the psyche out of psychology. Anyway, folks, that's all I have for tonight. I hope this was educational, informative, or at the very least entertaining. Thank you all for tuning in. I appreciate each and every one of you, and we'll catch you next time. Have a good night now.
coming December 16th, 2022, the new home for free speech, Free World FM, the alternative to the alternative. Keep on talking in the free world.